Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag where I answer your questions, hot takes, observations, and ultimately your comments about tennis or anything else. About 24 hours ago, I posted on the YouTube community tab. It's going to be a shorter one because I've been, I think I've been so consistent with the mailbags that there have been a lot of like big topics that I, I basically, I've talked about a lot of stuff. So I'm not going to, I could go like an hour every single week, but I probably won't do that. So going to be a shorter one probably, but you guys did a good job this week of giving thumbs up to the comments that you're interested in hearing about, which makes, makes it uh, much easier for me. So thank you for that. It basically tells me which comments I should pull. The other thing I want to say before I get started is I'm recording this Wednesday night. Tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. my time, Nadal is going to hold a press conference. I have no idea what he's going to say. So for obvious reasons, I'm, I ignored any comment about Rafa. And let's see what he says. I have a feeling I'll be making a video tomorrow about whatever he says. I'm a little nervous. I'm a little nervous. Of course, I want him to be healthy and to be able to play tennis. But I'm not sure that he would call a press conference if his only announcement was that he couldn't play Roland Garros. I have a feeling that in some kind of way, bigger news is coming, plans about his future. I have no idea what, but my inkling is that it's going to be a little bit bigger than just, I can't play Roland Garros. Which obviously makes me nervous. Hoping for the best. We'll see what happens. First comment here is from Anastasia. Has the Medvedev narrative of not playing well on clay been played out? His mentality on it seems to have changed, which seems to have translated into a much better clay court season than he has had in three or four years. Was it all just in his head? Yeah. Yeah, it was all just in his head. I have been saying this for years now, that Medvedev was always going to be a player who has the ability to make deep runs on clay. And I, I have never taken the, the stance as far as I think he's going to win big titles on clay or contend regularly for Roland Garros to, to win the title there. But I have always said, like, guys, he's not just going to lose in the first couple rounds. Like, it's never going to be like that. And that's what it was like in 2021. It got to the point where at... Uh, Roland Garros in 2021, when I picked Medvedev to make the quarterfinal, it was literally like a bold prediction. And ended up proving me right, losing to Tsitsipas in the quarters in 21. A lot of things have happened here. 
So let's just talk about this kind of Medvedev on clay thing. So in 2019, before he had his real breakthrough that summer and that kind of vaulted him to elite status the summer hardcourt season. But even before then, obviously there were some things like his fitness and his professionalism that were already kind of rounding into place. And we saw Medvedev have some of the most eye-popping results of his career that clay court season, making a Monte Carlo semifinal and beating Tsitsipas and Djokovic on the way. And then in Barcelona in 2019, making the final there and losing to Dominic Team. He ended up going on this big losing streak. First round Madrid to Pela, first round Rome, Kyrgios, first round Roland Garros to P.H. Herbert. So that was a, kind of the strange 2019. But as far as what can Medvedev do as a player in general, my line of demarcation is generally after that period, after summer of 2019. Well, okay, clay court season 2020 was totally jangled. It was... Only two events, and he didn't win a match. Lost first round in Hamburg to Hugo Umber. And then he uh, and then he lost first round at Roland Garros. Got a really bad draw playing Martin Fucevic, who you never want to face best of five first round if you're a seeded player at a slam. But also, who knows what his preparation was like at that point. In, you know, because COVID was making things really, really, really crazy at that time still. All right, 2021, that is when he was not competing and his attitude was horrendous about playing on clay and he just wasn't trying. He just wasn't trying, plain and simple. And at that point, I was I was watching him lose and it was like, well, he's just not giving himself a chance, really. Uh, but then... He felt good in Paris, and he made that quarterfinal run. Last year, he was injured. Clay is not a surface that comes naturally to Daniil Medvedev, especially the movement. And it takes him time, and he needs to work on it. So when you have instances like 2020 and 2022, where his preparation is, is likely very much compromised, he's he can't do what he can do on the surface. It's not going to look good. But the more, I think the more he progresses in his career and the more time he gets to practice on it and actually commit to improving on it, which I think he's done here and he's worked on his sliding and he's worked on putting a little bit more spin on his forehand. He is going to be a factor because the days of a player being top five on hard court and a non-factor on clay, those days are over. The games are way too similar across surfaces for that to, to happen. I don't, I'm not going to say ever because stuff can change like ever is a long time, but in, in modern tennis, the way things are right now, it's never going to be like that. So let's see what Medvedev does at, at Rome here. He's got Hoffman in the quarterfinal, heavy favorite in that one, of course, but Hoffman already has two top 10 wins over Fritz and Rublev. It'll be interesting to see. I already liked his position coming into the clay court season. Uh, you make a good point that his attitude has been better. Yes, I think he's gotten competitive about it. I think he's gotten professional about it. And he, I feel like there, he got kind of secure and comfortable in his own skin enough to be like, look, I'm not afraid 
to actually try and fail here. Uh, but I'm actually going to put my best foot forward and, and see what happens. I don't know what it was in 2021 that didn't allow him to do that. But I don't know. It's just kind of how it was. And uh, at this point, yeah, he's in a much better place. I don't know if I finished my point. I was saying that I, I already kind of liked another thing that I liked coming into this clay court season in particular is the the change in string technology that he made before the season that has given him access to a little bit more power on the forehand clogs up one of his uh, clay court issues, which was that sometimes he would have trouble uh, penetrating through the court off the ground on clay, especially in, in the on the slower clay, because his forehand was flat and just not quite big enough. And I think he's been hitting his forehand bigger this year. So he has that going for him. He's working on the sliding. And his attitude is good. I like Medvedev on the clay this year. Maybe not to win everything, but to make runs. Next one is from JCB. Hi, Gil. There's been some surprising upsets in Rome this season. Notably in Alcaraz, Sinner, and Rublev. Are there any notable patterns in these upsets? In general, when you have a Masters 1000 that has tons of favorites losing before the later rounds, should we treat it case by case? Or are there some underlying factors? Usually, I like to treat it case by case. Usually. In Madrid, I said, well, you know, in these super offensive conditions, some of these, you know, hyper-aggressive players got hot. And started playing this unbelievably high level. Especially looking at uh, Struff and Alcaraz. Um, who was the other lucky loser? Oh, uh, Altmaier. Eh, it doesn't really apply to Altmaier. Uh, or was, was Altmaier a lucky loser or a qualifier? I forget. One or the other at Madrid. Uh, but yeah, he was another surprise run. Now we have Hanfman, yes. We have Hanfman uh, coming through qualifying and making the quarterfinal. Another guy who, by the way, would not have made the cut in the previous format of Masters 1000. So that's been part of it. That's been eye-opening to see that there have been so many guys making quarterfinals or better who literally would not have had a chance to even attempt to qualify in the one-week 56-player draw format because the cutoffs for qualifying at those at those Masters 1000s or the one-week Masters 1000s is usually around 80 in the world. Hoffman outside the top 100. Not anymore, by the way. Congrats to him. Uh, he'll be at a new career high, around 80, if not higher. Uh, but he would not have been in qualifying. So one thing is the format, which has been showcasing the depth that exists in tennis. There's no doubt about that. Outside of that, it's tough for me to actually come up with a theory here. Now, we would need multiple years of this to have a clearer picture of if, if this is a trend or if this is just a blip in the radar. Because historically, as I said in the preview, the Rome Masters is an upset-averse event. It, it, just, it just hasn't been like this recently. Uh, last year... Last year, it was all top five seeds. Again, the only thing that's changed this year is the two-week format. 
and trying to create some logic out of that. Okay, how could that create more upsets? Here's the only thing I can come up with. And like, let me emphasize, this theory could be total baloney. There could be nothing to this. But this is the only kind of logic that I was able to create, other than more players actually getting into the draw and having an opportunity to make some noise. The other thing is, I've long felt that there is a positive feedback loop on tour because the top players get to rest their bodies more. Because if you are a top player, you don't necessarily play during a week of 250s or depending on the calendar spot, even during a week of 500s, you might skip and rest. But if you're a player who is trying to maintain a ranking that is going to give you the, the ability to qualify for a Masters 1000 or even more so the ability to qualify for a major, you're going to be playing every week for 11 months, which has always been patently insane. And as a result, there's always been an advantage for the top guys because they're just better rested. Well, are these two-week formats giving kind of the the entire tour a better chance to actually rest their bodies on a more regular basis? And is that making some of these guys a little bit more dangerous? Now, that said, going to the case-by-case -case example... Yannick Hoffman is has long been someone who is known from time to time to make a run on clay. Now, this is his first quarterfinal above 250 level, so we've never seen this before. But a couple years back, 2020, Kitzbühel, uh, he made a final. You know, he, he's been in a tour-level final, so he was a dark horse for me in Madrid. He hasn't come out of nowhere. He is someone who I would circle as, oh, unseated guy, really dangerous. So in that respect, it's not completely random. In the case of Francisco Serendolo beating Yannick Sinner, Francisco Serendolo has always been a guy on clay who I felt like, wow, this dude could be a problem with that forehand. Major problem. So that's not necessarily so shocking and random. Morojan, you know my stance on that. That is as that that's a wild one. But then when you look at Alcaraz, well, Oh my God, he's allowed at this point, he's allowed to have a bad match. It hasn't happened to him all season. He hasn't lost before a semifinal all season long. Now, it wouldn't be expected that when he would take that loss, that it would be against somebody like Morojan. But still, like, for God's sakes, it's about time he loses early. Like, it's okay, and it's understandable. And for Yannick Sinner, it had been a very, very long time since he had taken a premature loss as well. Uh, the only time that he was knocked out of tournaments against a non-Tier like tier 1, Tier 2 player was via walkover. Other than that, you would have to go back to when he lost to Sebastian Corda, who was on fire, by the way, in Adelaide. So... Look, maybe it's a combination of some of these things. Maybe it's just a fluke this year. But there are a lot of top guys who have actually been very consistent. Like uh, like Alcaraz and Sinner. And I don't know. I mean, maybe it was just unsustainable. And they, they, they have been, I don't know. Yeah, that's kind of all I got. It's a, it's a mishmash answer there of a lot of different things. But those are all my thoughts. This one from Anonymous. 
Hey, Gil, Yannick is soon to be 22, and his only one title this year, that of Montpellier 250, and though mostly consistent this year, he's been unable to convert the many semifinals slash finals into a big title win. Already falling behind Runa and Alcaraz, should he fire Vegnozzi slash Cahill, or what improvements he should make uh, to make that next step, or is he simply just a late bloomer? I've answered a somewhat similar question to this. I, I think it was about a month ago, or, or maybe it was after Monte Carlo, actually, which would have been less than a month ago, where someone was like, why hasn't Yannick won a big title yet? And my answer to that, just as a refresher, was Sinner wasn't ready to win a big title until this year. Like, he just wasn't there until this year. So it's not as if, like, an Alexander Zverev situation when it comes to majors, where I think there was some systematic things that were happening mentally where it's like, all right, you haven't beaten a top 10 player at a major and you yourself has been a top 10 level player for what? 17 to 22, five years for five years. He was a top 10 player without beating a top 10 player at a major. At that point, it's like maybe after year two, after year three, it's like, okay, what's going on here? I only give this Zverev example because let's compare it to the Sinner thing. For Sinner, it's been six months. For six months now, I felt like, and I know he was, he made the Miami final a bunch of years back. If he had won Miami, that would have been, to me, a, a premature big title for Sinner. It, it would not have been uh, an accurate, it would have been, you know, look, the draw opened up for him and and, and that was kind of what happened there. Uh, and he's excellent in Miami. It's a tournament that he generally tends to overperform at a little bit compared to just other events throughout his career. But uh, I haven't felt like his physicality is there or was there until this year. I also didn't think his serve was there until recently. Mostly athleticism and serve. Uh, in terms of the Cahill-Vignozzi thing, I'm so high and positive when it comes to Yannick Sinner because I feel like he keeps getting better and better every single year. And the guys who I'm hard on, the guys who I would... Now, look, I, I'm almost I'm almost never going to call for somebody to fire their coach. It's just not really my style or how I roll. Uh, but the only time I'm really going to question a guy is when they stop improving. And when players stop improving, that is when I, I might get you know critical of what the things they're doing or the trajectory of their career. Like, look at Yannick Sinner. Let me give you the win percentage, guys. His uh, his first year really full-time on tour was uh, 2019. And he went 11 and 10, 52% win percentage. Next year, he went 20 and 11, 64.5%. Next year, he went 50 and 22, 69%. Okay, now we're to 2022, last year, 47 and 17, 73%. 2023, this year so far, 29 and 9, 76%. So let me just rattle off the numbers for you because I know that, especially if you're just listening, it can be hard to comprehend. These are his win percentage by the, by the year 52, 64, 69. 73, 76. How am I going to be critical for a second of a guy who is improving that steadily?
And that doesn't happen by accident. It happens because him and his team are constantly adding things, improving, tinkering. He's changed his serve technique. He's made alterations to his serve technique again this year. Because he's just not okay with having an average serve. He's not okay with it. It it needs to be better, always. Until it's a great serve, he's not happy. He's not content. And I think he's also already made a big coaching change in his career. The guy, you know, the coach who developed him, Ricardo Piatti, who holds a lot of weight in terms of a, a figure he is in the coaching world as well. Sinner had the the balls to be like, I don't feel like you're giving me enough attention and I'm actually not happy. Even though my career trajectory has been pretty good, I feel like I've flatlined here. And he made a change that, again, I want to emphasize, takes a lot of balls. So he's doing everything right here. And I think he's in a great place. And I, I do start to worry a little bit mentally about the the scar tissue of, I don't know, the tough loss to Alcaraz in the U.S. Open quarterfinal and stuff like that. And, you know, losing a bunch of finals and semifinals at big events. I will start to wonder uh, or worry about the cumulative effect of that to his psyche. But unfortunately, that's just part of it for most players. And a lot of young players have to have to deal with that. That's why it's so big for Alcaraz that he already has that major in the bag. Because if he didn't, he would come into this Roland Garros as, you know, a, a borderline favorite. It, as far as the odds are concerned, I'm pretty sure just a clear-cut favorite. And it would be a, a crucible in terms of the pressure. There still is a lot of pressure, but way less because he's got that He's got that one. When it's a zero, you feel it. And when it's a one, it becomes much better. Next one is from Maxi. Do you think the surprising shock loss for Carlitos can be helpful in terms of upcoming RG? Thanks for the great content. As always, greetings from Germany. Greetings. It's a little bit too much time, honestly. I don't think he wants two weeks. I don't think he needs two weeks. I don't think it's a it's a, it's in the middle. Look, I don't think it's a disastrous amount of time. If a guy has let's say three weeks no match play, that's where I'm like, okay, I'm a little worried about your first couple rounds because you're not used to that competing feeling, physically, mentally, whatever it be. That's where I'm kind of worried about someone. Two weeks is not in that zone, but I also think it's not in the sweet spot of I'm well-rested, but I'm also kind of in the match play rhythm, you know, and, and I'm, I have that maximum match toughness. The sweet spot is honestly, you know, it's one week, and that's why it's not rare to see players do great at Rome, as Nadal and Djokovic have consistently for the last 16 years. And then do great at Roland Garros because a week is totally sufficient. You don't need more than that. So I wouldn't really spin Alcaraz's loss as too much of a positive in that respect in terms of getting well-rested and resetting. That being said, a lot of tennis March, April, 
for Alcaraz, especially when you have Barcelona in there. A lot of tennis. So, you know, we didn't play Monte Carlo, on the other hand. Um, so I think it's just fine. I don't have a strong take one, one way or the other. And it's not being wishy-washy. I just think, you know, it, it wouldn't have been bad for him to go all the way in Rome. But I, I you know, at the same time, I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's horrible for him to to have lost here. Uh, here's where I do think it helps him. He will learn from that match. He will, uh, especially on the second serve return, and some of the court position stuff that he struggled with. I think the biggest thing was that that he just couldn't. The fact that he kept getting attacked on second serve return points was a, a huge problem. And when you take losses like that and you are as cerebral and as analytical as Alcaraz and Juan Carlos Ferrero are, I think the good thing is if that there, you know, if 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 those were problems that were going to come up at some point, sometimes it takes a loss to really identify them and to uh, hammer them out. Next one is from Sarthak. It's another Alcaraz one. How much of Alcaraz's pace absorption issues are down to his racket, do you think? He is re reported to be using one of the lightest rackets on tour, not 100% confirmed. You could say it's even abnormally light, but while that allows him to create tremendous racket head speed, it also means he needs longer swims, swings than normal to defend against pace. Someone like Novak, for example, uses one of the heaviest rackets on tour, and it's clear to see how it helps him absorb pace and return amazingly. Alcaraz's return quality against the biggest servers isn't the greatest either. Do you think he'd benefit from adding weight to his racket as he gets older? Yeah, so I think this is a really astute comment. Murray is another guy who uses this unbelievably heavy racket, insanely heavy. And it's also kind of a low power setup. So you can see how Murray is just incredible on the first serve, on the return in general, incredible at absorbing pace, great precision. Nadal has a closer setup to Alcaraz, and those things don't come as seamlessly to him, but he's a better pace generator. So when it comes to, you know, these conversations about technology, it's probably something that isn't talked about enough, isn't focused on enough because it's it's tough to get too much in, in the weeds on them if you're not an expert on the subject. I tend to focus on not necessarily the why when it comes to racket technology, but just focusing on, okay, well, what is the 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 reality? Not so much the why, but the the reality of of, of just, it is what it is. Now let's go from there. And when it comes to Alcaraz's pace absorption, a lot of it could be the tech. Some of it, you know, when it comes to feel also, I think, uh, th there can be, there can be tech stuff. Like I, I feel like if you are, if you're trying to hit drop shots and you have this unbelievably, uh, unbelievably high power setup, with kind of a, a very loose string string bed, I think that kind of thing makes it a little bit harder. Just to throw out another example, 
Um, but would I would I recommend adding some weight to his racket at this time? No, definitely not. I mean, you really can't recommend that he changes his racket technology given all of the success that he's already had. Um, I would much I'd much rather see him look for ways to get more comfortable abbreviating his swing, lowering his center of gravity, and maybe even flattening the ball out in uh, when when it comes quick. From Kevin and Jackie Gunn, it's two people, two people teaming up for the mailbag comment. Love it. Earlier this year, you had Carlitos and Novak Tier 1, Steph alone Tier 2, and an uncertain group in Tier 3. I wonder how that has changed. Well, that was probably the only time in the last, like, three years that Medvedev was not in this conversation. I would say now we are back to the holding period that was kind of the case for a long time, which is that on hardcourt, Medvedev is tier one. But if you want to hold his surface versatility issues against him, I would, you know, I, I guess you could put him in tier two. So uh, Carlitos and Novak tier one, Medvedev, I think tier two is now a, a pretty large group actually, because I think you have to put Medvedev, Tsitsipas, you're giving him a pass for the injuries basically right now, although he does... He does really need to do something here. Rome, Roland Garros. Otherwise, there might be some question marks. Um, but Tsitsipas uh, definitely in Tier 2 with Medvedev and Runa and Sinner at this point. So we went from, uh, you know, really, I, I, it didn't feel like anyone could really be compared uh, to Tsitsipas right after the Australian Open. And now absolutely three players can be with Tsitsipas in Tier 2. No doubt about it. So things have changed a lot, really. Again, the way to look at tiers, it's not like if a player is at a certain level independently, that makes them, you know, tier one or tier two. It's really how can we group these players? And again, it's tough with surfaces changing, but like, do you see Runa as that different from Sinner, as that different from Medvedev, as that different from Tsitsipas? You know, at the end of the day, I don't think you should. I see those four players in a pretty similar light. From Max. Hey, Gil, why do even the greatest players of all time need coaching? This is a great question. I don't even know that I'm the best person to answer this question. In fact, I, I spoke to someone on Monday who would be a great person to answer this question, Paul Anacone. Uh, but here, but I'll take a stab at it, obviously. First thing, tennis is a pretty lonely sport. It doesn't matter if you're an all-time great. You, uh, you want someone to be with you on the journey. And I just want to throw that out there. Like, you, you don't want to be alone out there, and you want someone in a position to even just reinforce the things that, that you already know and tell you what to do, maybe, at times. Even if you kind of know what to do, you don't want to spend the mental energy on what are we doing at practice here when it, it's just much easier for someone to just tell you what you're doing uh, at practice. And if you want to weigh in, if you want to have some kind of uh, some input, obviously all the players have input on what they're doing because in tennis, the player is actually the boss of the coach. Tennis is the only sport where that's the case. 
Uh, but, you know, there are certain things that I think uh, players just don't want to spend mental energy on and shouldn't spend mental energy on that coaches can take care of. Uh, scouting is a big one as well. You know, scouting is hard work and annoying. Players don't want to do that on their own. It's a huge help to have somebody do that for you. Do I have a third thing? Oh, yeah. The third thing I want to point out is this. The all-time greats are the all-time greats because they continue to work on stuff and get better at stuff. Look at Goron. Like, that's the easiest example right now. Uh, I think Carlos Moya, on a similar timeline, did wonders for... for uh, uh, for for Nadal, and I think Lubacic did incredible things for Federer. So when it comes to the big three, we actually have three great examples here. Goran helping Novak with the serve tremendously. Moya helping Nadal, I think mostly with the mentality of aggressive tennis. Also helping the serve a bit, but mostly... I think just the aggressive tactics and Lubacic helping Federer flatten out his one-handed backhand and playing fast and aggressive on the return of serve with the drive backhand. So that's the big, that's one of the biggest lessons from the big three is you're never a finished product. All right, this one actually, this question actually kind of relates. Uh, this one's from Adrian. Hi, Gil. Hoping fifth time lucky for this question. Good way to get in the mailbags to ask uh, the same question five times. Uh, I was reading an article about how a football slash or parentheses soccer team had, <laughs> had no idea who their new incoming coach was before he arrived, despite him having achieved substantial success before. It got me thinking about the tennis realm. How often, to your knowledge, does the average top 50 tennis player watch tennis? Can any generalizations be made about how it's better to absorb as much information as possible by watching or how it's better to tune out and focus on your own game by not watching? Or is it all completely dependent on the individual tennis player? All right. Thanks for the question. It is a, it is a good question. Sorry, I didn't get to it the previous four times. Um, Yeah, so I think there's a wide spectrum here. I think some players really will would never actually just like watch a match for pleasure. And then, I think a lot of players are in that camp. I know there are some players who watch tennis all the time. You know, and they can't get enough of it. Do I have a preference? Yeah, I actually think it's a really good sign if you like to watch tennis. I think it means that you are enthusiastic about the sport intrinsically and you're not just kind of doing it because it's your job and because it's all you know. I think it's just a good sign to me that you are enjoying your life. You appreciate kind of what you're getting to do uh, to, to the highest level possible. But I also understand that not everyone can be like that. So while I think it's like a really good sign when you have Barbora Krejcikova just watching tennis every week live on site because she's like, whoa, this is great. 
I get a credential and a free ticket front row to, you know, Ostapenko versus Kuder Matova. Well, I think that that's, uh, like, that just shows me that Krejcikova is in an awesome place mentally. I think it's a good sign. I also understand that not everybody can be like that. And if, if you're somebody who's like, hey, when I go back to my hotel room, I need to play video games to take my mind off of tennis. Yeah, that you can't you can't possibly hold that against that that athlete or that individual because it's completely understandable. Uh, balance is important, I think. To be able to shut your mind off is important, especially when you know if, if anxiety is going to be kind of a, a negative byproduct in in your life as a professional tennis player. It's really important to have strategies to mitigate that. Because there's tons of science that'll tell you about how damaging stress can be in so many ways if you're a professional athlete. All right, couple more here. From, I'm just going to say 11, which is my favorite number, by the way. Medvedev will most likely end at number one on the race. To Turin, after Rome. Considering the clay court season is supposedly his weakest stretch of the calendar year, and there is only RG left, do you think Medvedev could be a contender for year-end number one this year? Oh, I mean, definitely a contender. I mean, there are three players who wouldn't surprise me if they ended number one. Alcaraz, Medvedev, and Djokovic. Those are the three players where I wouldn't be surprised. So he's in that group, 100%. And I think it's wise of you to point out that um, that he's in this position. You know, clay court season, potentially heading into Roland Garros as number one. Now, there's three majors left on the year, and that's going to dictate a lot. So just keep in mind, these next couple months with RG and Wimbledon, that's where the race is going to become a whole lot clearer uh, just based on the number of points on the line. All right, last one here from Karen. On the topic of whether Grand Slams can have asterisks over them in the open era from the last mailbag, I believe most people put an asterisk over the Australian Open title that Peter Corda won in 1996 because shortly after that, Peter was suspended due to drug usage and thus had an unfair advantage in winning the title. Also, of the slams that the big three won, which were the ones with the weakest competition for each of them? I think Federer Wimbledon 2017, Nadal US Open 17, and Djokovic Australian Open 2023. Thanks. All right, so for Korda, for Peter Korda, I agree with you. But when you, when you get caught doping... It's not that the tournament has an asterisk. It's not that the Australian Open in 1996 has an asterisk, which is what people have been mostly, you know, suggesting. Like, oh, if Nadal and Djokovic don't play, does it have an asterisk? If, you know, because of COVID, does it have an asterisk, right? That is what people have been suggesting. In this case, it is not the tournament. It is the individual. Where it's not just that Corda's 1996 has an asterisk asterisk his entire career has it his name has it and you know famously in sports I, I believe that 
the usage of performance enhancing drugs is basically the whole impetus for asterisk. It is basically the only reason why we need asterisks in sports. Because obviously cheating is a separate category. And, and I almost think this puts it into a sharper light and a sharper focus when it comes to the ridiculousness of putting an asterisk on something like Dominic Team's 2020 U.S. Open. When we generally reserve this thing for cheating and we are going to now put it on, oh, Nadal didn't play and Djokovic got DQ'd and there weren't any fans in the stands. We're going to make that equivalent to cheating kind of, kind of makes it kind of puts it in its ridiculous bucket that I believe it belongs in. All right. The last one was about weak slams for the, for the big three. Uh, so Nadal us open 2017, hundred percent. That one, that one is, uh, as easy as it gets. Um, let's just kind of recount these. Real quick. So 17 US Open was Dusan Lajevic, Taro Daniel, Leo Meyer, Alexander Dolgopolov, Andre Rublev. This was Rublev's breakthrough. He was 53 in the world at the time. Uh, Juan Martin Del Potro in the semis. That was Del Potro. Couldn't really hit his backhand at the time. He was 28 in the world. Still dangerous, but Del Potro could only slice. I thought it was amazing that he was able to make the semis. All right, and then Kevin Anderson in the final. Kevin Anderson, who was 32 in the world at the time. So that was the 17 Nadal. I, I agree that, that was, that's got to be the one for Nadal. For Federer, uh, let's look at that 2017 uh, Wimbledon. Because I, I also remember a, a similar thing. Uh, it was Dolgopolov, Lajevic, Misha Zverev, Grigor Dimitrov in the round of 16. Dimitrov was 11 in the world. That's pretty tough round of 16. Raonic in the quarters. Raonic on grass. That's pretty tough. Then in the semis, I don't know. You know, it's Burdic in the semis, who even has a win in his career over Federer at Wimbledon. I think that was 2011. And then Chilich in the final. Eh, I don't know. You know, it's not that easy. I get that Chilich in the final is not, you know, and then, but, you know, Chilich also won a major and made. Ultimately, uh, three major finals. So, I don't know. That's not that's not a great one. For Djokovic, I know I disagree with you. I know I disagree with you on the uh, on the Australian Open 2023. Uh, just because of Pass mostly. Uh, and then, you know, Rublev in the quarterfinals. Rublev is six in the world. Pass is four in the world. I, I think that his Wimbledon, I think for Djokovic... Wimbledon uh, 2021 was far easier than Australian Open 2023. Um, you look at his 2021 Wimbledon, that, that has to be it for Djokovic. It was Kevin Anderson in the first round, 102 in the world, coming off of injury. Uh, Dennis Kudla, Garin on grass, Fucevic in the quarters. As much as Fucevic is a bad draw in the first round, he's not a bad draw in the quarters. Shapo in the semis. Shapovalov, I mean, he, he he was not he was not he was excellent in that tournament. He was horrid in that semifinal. 
He was not good. And then Berrettini in the final. And I just think there's a pretty big difference between Berrettini and Tsitsipas, to be completely honest. So I feel like this Wimbledon, uh, all in all, uh, was much easier for Djokovic than this year's Australian Open. All right, that will do it. Thanks, everybody. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you mean cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. Yeah. New New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.